And so as the children are making their way to their classrooms, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. And again, that's Mark 15, 1 through 20. So as you're turning your way there, um, it's worth just as we step into this next chapter in Mark's narrative of Jesus' passion for his people, it's worth recapping the story so far. Just remember where we've been and see everything that's been building up to this point in the story. So a couple of weeks ago, we started back in chapter 14, and we saw how Mark sandwiched, on the one hand, the Jewish leaders were plotting to take Jesus out. They wanted to kill him. They were fed up with his teaching and the way he was calling them out for their hypocrisy. And on the other hand, we had Judas, who was willing just for a little bit of money to play right into their hands and to betray Jesus. And sandwiched in between that, we had a woman come with just this lavish act of worship where she burst apart the alabaster flask of ointment upon Jesus, and Jesus interpreted her worship as, she's anointing me for my burial. And so right then, we had these two tensions already in play. On the one hand, the Jews scheming against Christ to put him to death, and on the other hand, this idea that Jesus knows what is happening and that there's a deeper meaning than the Jews yet realize. And then we, we turn to the upper room when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a means of grace that one would help his disciples both then and now to this day understand what he did, understand what depths of love he had for his people in dying on the cross. And then from there, Mark introduces a very strong sense of irony in that Peter is boldly actually denies what Jesus says about him. Peter says, Jesus, you're wrong. They might fall away, but I won't. And Jesus says, no, you will deny me three times. And then Peter can, one, hardly stay awake in Gethsemane to pray with Christ, then lashes out in violence rather than going with his Savior as he's arrested, and then finally does indeed deny Jesus three times, his Savior and his best friend. And then we had Judas ironically greet Jesus as though he a friend, calling out rabbi and greeting him with a kiss, only to stab him in the back and turn him over to the Sanhedrin. And then finally, the, the Jewish religious leaders, men who claim to care so much about God's reverence and God's law, break the law in countless ways as they bear false witness against Christ just so they can get what they want. And so the irony between man's brokenness and sinfulness and fallenness contrasts with Jesus' steady and silent righteousness, his perfection unto the cross. And as we turn now into chapter 15, the irony thickens and focuses specifically on Jesus being our king. Because in this chapter, this is the chapter in Mark's gospel when Jesus is called king most of all, and yet it's also the chapter when he suffers most severely and is most brutally afflicted. And so what it shows us is that our king is not like the kings of this world. He is our crucified king, a king who endures death itself to set his people free from sin, Satan, and death. And so what we're gonna see is that the most supreme irony of all in Mark's account here is that all of this is happening according to God's word, according to his plan. As the Jews plot and scheme, as Pilate bows down to the ways of the world, God knew all of this from beforehand. He planned it for us. And so all of that irony is designed to teach us a one key truth, and that's that Jesus silently suffered on our behalf in order to set God's people free from our sin and then to equip us to endure suffering and mockery for his glory. And so we're gonna see that uh, in three sections of the narrative. And first, we're gonna look at verses one through five and see that our king is accused and yet silent. So hear the word of the Lord. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. 
and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So as the story continues, the Sanhedrin, which is just the council of Jewish leaders, they reach a decision about what they're gonna do with Jesus. And they say, all right, we're gonna hand him over to Pilate. We can't kill him, but that's what we want. So we're gonna turn him over to the powers that can make this happen. And it's early morning that they do this because in Roman society, if you're an administrator or a governor or anyone in leadership, you took care of all that political and legal stuff in the morning because Rome was affluent. And in the afternoon, you had more important things like luxury and leisure to entertain yourself with. So you took care of business and then you rested and chilled rest of the day. So the Jews know this, they plot it throughout the night and then they're ready to go in the morning to hand Jesus over to Pilate. And to Pilate, as this is happening, it starts out, this is just another day on the job for him. Because as governor over this area of the Roman Empire, over the Jerusalem area, he had been putting down insurrections and rebellions and all kinds of things for a long time. And yet, Mark is constantly providing details through his story to show us this is no ordinary day and this is not just another trial. For example, it's easy to pass over this, but look again at verse two and notice what it is that the Jewish leaders do to Jesus. They bind him and then hand him over to Pilate. And so think about for a second how amazing that is, that here we have Jesus, the God-man himself, is bound like a criminal by a bunch of hypocritical human beings. So here we see that the Son of God, the one by whom every single one of us was made, the one who holds creation in existence, was willing not just to become a man, but become a man of sorrows who is bound, handcuffed, and handed over like a common thug. You know, think of Samson by contrast, who in the Old Testament constantly by God's power ripped apart the bonds that were put upon him. And yet here we have Jesus humbly submitting himself to these bonds, though he could have called upon a legion of angels to set him free. Or think of Psalm 2, our call to worship this morning, which told us that the kings of men, they conspire together to burst apart the bonds of God's reign and power. And yet here we have King Jesus meekly submitting to these wicked kings' schemes and plots. Can you imagine what it would look like if one of our world leaders was bound like this and handed over like a criminal? How utterly shocking and humiliating it would be. And yet here we have our God, the king not just of our country but of the universe of all time being treated like a criminal. And he did this for us. And so just with that very act of Jesus being bound by these men, behold the humility of Christ our King. He is not like the kings of the world. Now once Jesus gets handed over to Pilate, this leader of Rome has just one question for him. Are you the king of the Jews? And this question echoes the high priest's question from chapter 14, which we heard last week, are you the Christ? And the version of the question that Pilate asks shows us that this is the charge the Jews brought against Jesus. And they translate it Messiah to king because so long as Messiah just means something to the Jews and their religion, Pilate never would have cared. He doesn't care about blasphemy. He doesn't care so long as they stay on their little religious reservation and leave the Roman Empire alone. But as soon as the Jews make it clear that no, Jesus being the Messiah means he's got political as well as religious implications, then Pilate's gotta listen. 
Because what Jesus is being accused of is high treason. And not just that he's sort of speaking out against Caesar or that he doesn't like the government very much or that he doesn't wanna pay his taxes. He's being accused of saying, forget about Caesar, I'm the real king. Caesar's got nothing on me. The ironic thing is that's what the Jews wanted Jesus to do the whole time. They wanted him to come in and smash the Roman governments and powers that be and set them free so they'd have their own kingdom. And Jesus said, no, my kingdom's of, not of this world. It's different than that. And so they take the very thing they wanted and now use it to leverage against Jesus and to get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And it's likely, too, that Pilate's question is just dripping with derision and sarcasm, as though he's saying, are you one who's being betrayed by your own people? You claim to be their king? You who have been bound by this band of priests and scribes, you're supposed to be a threat to me and my empire? I don't think so. And in the face of this, with all the odds stacked against him, Jesus' answer is simple and almost even evasive. He flips the burden of the question back onto Pilate and says, you have said so. At first glance, that might seem puzzling because you look at it and you're like, well, I don't really see when Pilate said so. So is Jesus playing word games and that he said king of the Jews in the question? Like, what's, what's he doing here? Well, when Pilate said this and what Jesus' point is, is that in everything Pilate has already done and everything he is about to do, he is proclaiming to the world for all time to this day that Jesus is in fact king of the Jews. Pilate, after all, will be the one to nail the placard above the cross, as we'll see in a couple weeks. And so the point that Jesus is making is that everything the Jews are doing and everything Pilate is about to do, it is all happening as, as has been foretold by God's word. And so yes, Pilate, you have said so, and you are saying so. The son will be faithful to the end, and he will save his people. But with that as his answer, Jesus remains silent until he is hung on the cross and cries out right before his death. And in, his, in the face of his silence, the Jews then unload on Jesus and they launch accusation after accusation, accusing him of saying he's gonna throw down the temple, telling people not to pay taxes, stirring them up against the Romans. They're just lobbying whatever they can think of at him. And Pilate isn't stupid. You see, he understands, as we'll see in the next section, that he gets what's going on here. He knows the Jews have just turned Jesus over because they're envious of him. They're sick and tired of him getting the people to like him better than them. And so in Pilate's mind, all he needs is for Jesus just to speak up and show that these Jews are full of baloney when they're talking about him, that none of this has any substance. Jesus could have easily dismissed their accusations and then been proven innocent and gotten off scot-free. And so what Pilate cannot fathom is why Jesus is silent. And so why is he silent? Well, he's silent because as he wrestled with in Gethsemane and, and said in prayer, this is the cup he must drink and it is a weighty one. He will be condemned before Pilate in order that we might not be condemned before God because we are the ones who deserve to be relentlessly accused the way he was being accused here. Think of back in the story of Job where we saw Satan coming at Job again and again and again, accusing him of hollow worship. And think of our own lives and the sins we've committed and know that Satan's name, it means accuser, and that is what he wants to do to God's people. He wants to stand before the throne of God, point at us and say, they're not worthy of your love. They're not worthy of being your people. And but for Christ and God's grace, that would be our destiny. And we would deserve it. It would be just. 
but through his silence in the face of this injustice, Jesus takes on the accusations that we deserve to bear in order to set us free and justify us and make us right with our Father. He is silent and he bears the words that should have had the final say over us, all in order that he and not our sin and not Satan and not death will ultimately have the final say over us. And so if you look at this screen, I have a quote from Sinclair Ferguson who in meditating on this passage, it's, it's truly beautiful as he applies it uh, to our lives. He says this, he was silent because of every word that has proceeded from your lips, because of every word that provides adequate reason for God to damn you for all eternity, because you have cursed him or his image, that is other human beings. The Lord Jesus came into the world to bear the judgment of God against the sin of our tongues. When he stood before the high priest in the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate, he accepted a sentence of guilt. But that was my guilt. He bore in his body on the tree the sins of my lips and my tongue. And I would add not just the sins of our lips and tongues, our words, but our actions, our deeds, our thoughts, every ounce of rebellion that of our hearts have ever poured out against our creator. He bore the guilt on the cross to set us free. And yes, it was unjust before Pilate. And yet this is what justly uh, frees us from the guilt of our sins and makes us right with our Father. So praise be to God that our Savior was silent and that he endured this. And so for us, it's worth asking, what makes it possible for us to endure suffering and injustice as Christ endured suffering and injustice? And first of all, the fact of the matter is, is that the worst that could ever happen to us, which is that we would be damned for our sins, if we are in Christ, that can no longer happen to us. The worst can never get to us because we are secure in Christ. And so suffering and injustice, though they are monstrously heavy and hard and mysterious at times, those things cannot snatch us out of our Savior's hand. And the very fact that we are loved by a God who became a man and a man of sorrows who would die in our place indicates, us, indicates to us that we above all others have reason for hope, reason to live, to endure. Being a philosophy major in college, one of the term papers we'd always have to wrestle with is the problem of evil which is, if there's a good God, why does he allow suffering happen to good people if he's so powerful? And usually what folks are trying to do when they ask you that question is they're trying to pin you in a box so you have to deny one of those things. Either you look like a weirdo who says, oh, suffering's not so bad, which is obviously not true, or as they're really trying to pin you down, you have to deny either God's goodness, his power, or his existence altogether. And I can tell you, we could talk sometime over coffee why this question is bogus. It only came around in the enlightenment. It's a bad question. That's what it's trying to do. It doesn't actually care about God. But whatever, whenever philosophers tend to talk about this question, they always forget the fact of the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ. Because if you have a God who becomes man and who himself submits to injustice and suffering of the most extreme kind, then your question's blown to bits. You don't have a question anymore. You have an answer and it's the crucified God who died for his people. And so for us, we can endure because that is our God and because he promises to be with us. No matter what Satan or the world or our own consciences may say when we're struggling with doubt and fear, Jesus has the final word. He has endured before us and that sets us free in him to endure any hardship imaginable. 
And let's turn back to the text, verses six through 15, as we see that our righteous king is condemned, but the sinner is set free. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. At this point, a crowd had formed outside of the place where the trial happened. Um, And the custom that is talked about here, it wasn't explicitly stated in either Jewish or Roman law, but it is attested to in documents about the Roman Empire. Sometimes what the governors would do when they were ruling over a people, they would release a prisoner at a specified time in the year. And really what this was is it's a cheap way to win the people over to your side. You just have one less head that you're going to make roll and you give them back somebody who's not really a threat and it looks like you're on their side and you care about their problems. And so this custom in Jerusalem always happened at Passover. And so Pilate is thinking that they're gonna ask for Jesus. But as Mark makes clear, there's another guy in the story that takes place of that. And his name's Barabbas. And he explains that Barabbas was a rebel who had committed murder in the insurrection. And we don't really know for sure which insurrection he's talking about, but the way he casually refers to it shows that everyone knew this event. It was fresh in their minds. And the odds are actually that Barabbas and the other two men who will be crucified on either side of Jesus were all on death row for what they had done in this rebellion. Because you see, there was this branch of Judaism called the Zealots. And these were the Jews who were fed up with life under Roman rule. They were sick and tired of taxation without representation. They were sick and tired of feeling like strangers in their own land. And they were gonna do something about it. And clearly, Barabbas is a man who had done something about it. And yet for him, the empire struck back and he got caught and he was on death row and they were gonna make an example of him and say, you don't mess with Rome and get away with it. With all that in mind, as the Jews are congregating outside of Pilate's place of residence and demanding that he honor this custom, he does think they're gonna ask for Jesus because he's heard of how popular Jesus was with the crowds and he knows that this is just a kangaroo court, that this is bogus, that there's no weight to the charges against Jesus and that the high priests are the envious and jealous ones. But he didn't bank on the fact that the priests are able to whip the crowd up into a frenzy and turn them to Barabbas, a man who's done something about it, whose actions they can see instead of Jesus who is silently suffering injustice and looks like, for all intents and purposes, a weakling. But even so, as they're calling out for Barabbas, Pilate recognizes that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And it's not so much that Pilate is this noble figure who's looking out for Jesus. It may just be that he is a rascal and doesn't want to give the Jews what they want. He doesn't want to look like he's being bossed around by the crowd. And so he tries to reason with them. He tries to push back and say, well, what has he done wrong? Why should I crucify him? But as the people are whipped up into a frenzy, Pilate realizes, you know what? 
It's just more expedient to let them have what they want. Because yes, he could have squashed any rebellion, but that would have cost resources and time and his men's lives. And so for him, it was more pragmatic and politically savvy just to kill Jesus and give him what they wanted so he could have the peace and get on with his day. He knows, and to him, that is, he thinks Jesus is just a backwards religious loon, and he knows that ultimately Jesus is harmless and truly innocent. But to Pilate, he's also completely expendable. And so we see here that the Son of God is handed over by the Jews out of envy and sentenced to death by Pilate because of political pragmatism and the fear of man. And think about how those things, political pragmatism, envy, the fear of man, how they make a wreck of our world this day, how you can just study history and see how the fall in Genesis 3 has echoed like a thunderclap throughout all of history and has made a mess of things. And we can look at this passage and we can hang our heads at the brokenness on display here. We can claim hindsight as 2020, but we must not forget that we are doing this all too often as well. That these things get in our hearts and drive our actions and drive us to sin. And as David E. Garland reminds us, all too often our heroes become the Barabbases of the world who take matters into their own hands and dispatch the enemy with brute force or clever trickery. And if the vote came today, then Barabbas would likely win again, hands down. We are more comfortable with the violent machismo of the knight errant than with the passive suffering of a seemingly powerless savior who submits to beatings and mockery. Put otherwise, we want an anti-hero. We want someone who's gonna save the day, but who's no saint. Someone who has flaws and problems like the rest of us, but who can still do something about it. Someone like Barabbas. And whether it's the superheroes that dominate the box office today or the secret agents and cowboys of movie eras past, we can just watch our entertainment and see it's always been the same. We want a Deadpool, a Jason Bourne, a Josie Wales, someone who will save the day but who has blood on their hands. Because then, yes, they're powerful enough to fix the problem, at least temporarily, but they're not too perfect to make us uncomfortable and be confronted with the fact that we're part of the problem too and that we are also broken. But the problem with anti-heroes and any champion of man that we could offer to fix the world's problems is that you and I are part of the problem. And if we yoke ourselves to a savior who's just like us, then the brokenness of this world will never end. None of us would make it out of alive because we're part of the problem. And if you were to get rid of the problem, then you just have to get rid of us. And history's chock full of our attempts to try to save the day, to remake the world, and it always goes wrong. We can never make it last. Because ultimately, we don't just need someone who can take out the bad guys. We need someone who can redeem us from our sins. And so praise be to God that Jesus is no anti-hero, but that he is the son of God who became man so that he was like us in every way except without sin. So that the only blood on his hands was his own. His own blood, which he shed for our sins, Notice how different he is than all the heroes we like to look at in our entertainment and read about in our books. Jesus does not violently take a bunch of the bad guys down with him. Instead, he dies in our place and redeems us so that we, who were once the bad guys, can be redeemed as sons and daughters of the God Most High. And Jesus doesn't utter some epic one-liner in order to diss his enemies one last time before going out in a blaze of glory but he endures their accusations and their mockery and the injustice 
in silence so that he might be the one to speak a better word over us, declaring us to be forgiven because of what he's done. So do you realize that what we see happening here with Barabbas and Jesus is a picture of what Jesus did for every single one of his people? That we were the ones sitting on death row because of our rebellion? That we were the ones who deserved death? But behold our God, substituting his own son so that we might not just get off scot-free like Barabbas and then go make a wreck of the rest of our lives, but so that we might be set free from sin and death indeed and have newness of life, have union with Christ, have communion with our Father, be able to worship, be able to know that the brokenness will not have the final word, but that there is a king and his name is Jesus and that he will make all things new and that he will put an end to the brokenness of this world. And so ask yourself, How does the fact that Jesus is the substitute for our sins, for your sin and my sin, how is that affecting how you live your life? Do you live as one who has been set free indeed? Or do you torture yourself with what I call the sin cinema where you constantly replay in your mind sins from ages past and you worry about if you've truly repented or not, which really just means you're focusing on yourself and not the sufficiency of Christ, your substitute, You're free, he's died for you, it's finished. Live as one who is free indeed. Do you live as one who has joy in this world? So often it's interesting, I just got married, I'm in seminary looking out at the horizon at ministry and you know, in some ways, you know, if I have an average lifespan, my whole life's ahead of me, so they would say. And it's interesting talking to other people at work who are my age about getting married and having a family and you look at the news and people are like, man, why would you wanna have a family in this world? Why would you wanna go into ministry right now? Like, it doesn't make sense. And if it is just up to us, then yeah, it doesn't make sense. But we have a God who has died in our place and who gives us hope, so it makes perfect sense. And we are the ones who are then able to go out with joy and be able to laugh and smile and enjoy the beauty of creation. And that alone is witness to the fact that the brokenness will not have the final say. That bears witness to the fact that no matter who's in charge of whichever country, Christ sits on his throne and no one's taking that away and that he will reign with wisdom and power and goodness. So take time this Sabbath day and meditate on that fact that Christ really did take your place and use this story just to help you think about the significance of that and just the sheer wonder of it. And finally, let's turn back to the text and close out with verses 16 through 20 as we see that our king is mocked. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, before we get to these verses in particular, I wanna flash back really quick to verse 15 because there's something there that we need to understand before we get into the soldiers' mockery and mistreatment of Jesus. And back in verse 15, Pilate has Jesus scourged. And this wasn't just a regular old beating. It's what the Romans typically did to a prisoner condemned to die on a cross before he got there. 
They would use a whip called the flagellum, and it was basically a whip of several leather cords that was interwoven with bits of metal and bone. They would strip you naked, and they would tie your hands above your head, tie them to a post. With your back arched out, they would lash you with this whip. And it wasn't designed to give you welts. It was designed to rip your flesh to tatters and shreds. And the end result was that your back flesh would just be hanging off your body, and you'd be really bloodied. Many victims never made it to their cross because of how brutal this was. And it's worth keeping in mind because everything that Jesus is about to endure psychologically as he is mocked happens after this. And I don't mention this to be gratuitous. Mark doesn't spend much time going into the gory details and we don't need to either, but so often we say the Apostles' Creed and suffered under Pontius Pilate and we have no idea what we're talking about. We've never stopped to think that because Jesus was truly God and truly man, that as bad as that sounds to you right now, that's how bad it hurt him and worse. He really felt it. He really suffered for us. That's how great his love is. And with that in mind, we then see that the soldiers take Jesus inside the palace, beaten and bloodied, probably to their barracks, and they gather a crowd of their fellow soldiers. Mark says they get the whole battalion or the Roman cohort, which could have been as many as 600 soldiers. Either way, it was a ton of soldiers. They're all watching Jesus. And think about how these guys would have felt. Because you're stationed in Jerusalem, far away from Rome, amongst people who hate your guts, and you don't like them either. They're jeering at you. They might throw rocks at you. You've lost friends. You've lost your blood because you've been putting down their insurrections, which are totally futile, and all they do is get people killed. And you're sick of it. And finally, all of a sudden, you have a fellow who's being condemned for claiming to be their king in your hands. And you can do whatever you want with him. And so they use Jesus as a punching bag. But before they kill him, they're gonna make it, they're gonna take the knife and they're gonna put it in his ribs and twist it as much as they can because they're gonna say, all right, you're gonna call yourself a king? We'll treat you like a king. It's like if you've ever seen The Dark Knight, there's that scene where the Joker catches the wannabe Batman who's like wearing hockey pants or whatever. And he catches that Batman and tortures him. And he doesn't just kill him. What he does is says, oh, you wanna call yourself a Batman? I'll treat you like a Batman. And he takes the ideal the man stood for and rubs his face in it only to then kill him. So the mockery is as thorough as you can get. That's what's going on here. They're saying, you wanna be a king? We'll treat you like a king all the while making it abundantly clear that Christ in this moment is giving up all his power. They're the ones who strip him. They're the ones who clothe him. He's totally in their hands and he's silent. And everything they do, the crown of thorns, the purple cloak, the things they say to him, the way they bow to him, it's all an exact parody of a Roman enthronement ceremony. But the amazing thing is that for as thorough as their mockery goes, and as brutal as Jesus' torture has been so far, Marx crafted this story so that we who are in Christ see the real irony. The soldiers think they're being clever, like, ah, look at us, we're treating him like a king, we're being ironic. But Marx says your irony's not going deep enough because you are actually the ones who are proclaiming the truth because he is king. And even though here, as we sing in some of the songs we use in our worship here, even though darkness is rejoicing as though heaven is about to lose, it's not true. They're proclaiming the truth that Christ is in fact king. 
In fact, Jesus himself back in Mark 10, 33 through 34 said this, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, that's happened, and they will condemn him to death, that's happened too, and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Check, check, check. He knew every bit of it before it happened. This is why we say that God's grace is costly because it costs the life of Jesus the agony of being tortured, the cruelty of being mocked, the abject misery of crucifixion. This is the price Jesus paid for you and for me. And yet he knew the joy set before him because back in Mark 10, he also said on the third day he would rise. He would stand victorious and he would set his people free. The dawn would come. The darkness would not last forever. Their laughing would end. and would be replaced with the laughter of a people who are with their God. So great is his love for us. But knowing that, for us, we have to ask ourselves, are you prepared to endure mockery and scorn for your faith? And how are you using the means of grace to prepare for such mockery and scorn? This is a heavy question. We really don't have a good frame of heart and mind to respond to mockery. You know, think about the last time someone's made fun of you maybe about your faith, maybe just about the shirts you're wearing. That happens to me sometimes. I don't match well. Um, But maybe they ridiculed your beliefs on Twitter or Facebook or gossiped about you and it got back to you. Or maybe you got dissed to your face. How did you respond and did it feel good? And maybe, especially if you've seen Christianity made fun of, maybe you've heard or even said something like this, man, other religions, they always get made fun of or they never get made fun of. We're always getting made fun of. Other religions are never messed with or persecuted like Christians. Tolerance applies to everybody except us. How often do we say and think that? And yet, where do you find that in the Bible? Where do we see that that's what we should be concerned with? We're not fighting for religious liberty. We're not trying to carve out safe places for our faith. We're already as safe as we will ever be in Christ. And in fact, if you think about it, To try to avoid suffering at all costs and to avoid mockery at all costs would mean we think we know better than Jesus, like Peter did when he said, no, Jesus, you don't get me. I'm not gonna deny you. Because Jesus himself said back in Mark 13 that if you follow me, the world's gonna hate you as it's hated me. And we don't know better than Jesus. He knows us, his people. So why don't we believe him when he says that's what's gonna happen? And more than that, do we believe And we find hope in his presence, knowing that he will be with us when that happens. As we look around in the world, we hear of stories in other countries where Christians are persecuted and they're dying for their faith. So often we act like there are different tiers of Christianity, like that's the big leagues and we're over here playing t-ball. But there aren't different leagues in Christianity. We're all God's people. We are his family. Those are our brothers and sisters. And what normal for them is what was normal of the church from the beginning. We're the ones who are abnormal with the freedom and the peace and the tolerance we have. And we should give God thanks for those gifts because they are gifts and we should use them to nurture our families and our hearts to equip disciples who will make disciples to go out and share the good news of Christ our King with whomever will listen. But if the day comes when the peace for us fractures and the tolerance runs dry and the religious liberty disappears, we must not assume that that means God has abandoned us. Because if the absence of those things means the absence of God, 
then where was God with his people in the beginning when that was what they went through every day? Persecution, not peace. We might ask, how did they endure that? Why would they sign up for that? Who would sign up to follow this guy who was crucified for being charged for saying he was king instead of Caesar? Who would then say, yes, he is king instead of Caesar? If that's what it meant for him. Well, those who are called by him, those who have his spirit within him, and those who know that Christ promises to be with his people and that this is true. As we're meditating on these things, I wanna read for you something Paul says in Philippians 3. When he talks about Christ's suffering and Christ's death, hear in that everything we just talked about because that's what Paul is meditating on. So he says this, indeed, I count everything as loss, everything, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We live this side of Christ's resurrection. We know that the hope set before us is that we will, by God's grace, attain the resurrection of the dead. Yet Paul is saying that so often the time when we are closest to our God is the time when the world is most against us. And is there injustice here? Is there suffering and evil? Yes. But our God is with us. And he will overcome. He already has in Christ on the cross. So the question for us is, do we, like Paul, see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Sometimes we feel ashamed, I think, when we talk about or we think about witnessing and evangelizing. You know, you've got bad images of tracks and goofy attempts of youth pastors, I hope I don't do this here, of trying to say like, oh, look, you know, you like that movie? Well, let me show you where Jesus is in it. We don't need to do that. Behold Christ, our King. We don't need any better analogy than what we see here, that he would enter into this broken and gritty and guilty world that we live in in order to save us and to remake things and make them new. Do you see how great his love is for us? Do you see how great of a love he offers those who are hurting and broken in the world? God is not sitting off in the distance trying to judge you and cramp your style and keep you from having fun. God entered into the world through his son to bring you out of the muck and the mire and the darkness and the shadow of death because he loves you. That's the gospel. That's our king. So as we close out, Mark 15, one through 20 teaches us that first, Jesus' silent suffering makes it possible for us to endure injustice and suffering. He's already borne the the curse. The worst that could happen to us, he took on himself. That's why Paul will talk about at times this momentary and light affliction. It can't touch the weight of glory that we have in Christ. Do you know that? And then second, Jesus' substitution for our sins, it sets us free unto newness of life. The calling to be a Christian isn't just to freak out about our sins and to be obsessive over that. It's to confess our sins knowing that they're forgiven in Christ and then to go out into the world to be a disciple, to live as a child of God because it's true of you if you're in Christ. And then finally, all who follow Jesus will eventually endure suffering and mockery of some kind, but he is with us and he equips us by the means of grace. So take time and know your God. 
Know his love for you. Know the greatness of your king. Enjoy the means of grace, his word, prayer, the sacraments. As we prepare for the Lord's table, take time and think about this, that this is the one whose body was broken. This is the one whose blood was shed. And he does this for his people because he loves them. Amen? Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you, Lord, that you are a mighty king. And that, Lord, no matter what the world may say about you or about us, your people, Lord, you stand victorious. And, Lord, we thank you for your patience, that you are not like us. You don't lash out every time someone mocks you, but instead you extend grace and you tarry in order that we could, as we endure injustice and suffering, proclaim your gospel, that many who are rebellious now, many who mock the faith, Lord, would come to see the beauty and truth of it. Lord, would you use us to be such a people? Would you help us to rest well this day, knowing that, Jesus, you have substituted yourself for our sins and that we are set free under newness of life and that we have communion with our God. We thank you. Would you stir us up now, even as we worship, and we praise you, our Savior. Would you help us to enjoy this and to delight in your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.